Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 139, for the week ending January 25, 2019, the worst officiating non-call edition ever. As the NFL completely blows yet another call and response in a NFC Championship game, and the Patriots and Rams advance to the Super Bowl, Jay and myself ask, does the NFL even care to get it right? We also look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Before we get to that, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004 and celebrating their 15th anniversary this month, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on our sponsor, check out their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. This week, we uh, have a wide variety of stories. We take a look at the first GDPR fine against a U.S. company, Google, new corporate governance in uh, Germany. Deutsche Bank considers its continues its run of regulatory scrutiny. Dick Casson asks, should some parts of a compliance be- program be kept secret? An academic study finds that fraud mars a firm's reputational value. Mike Volkoff considers siloed compliance and how to overcome it. Matt Kelly and I take a look at specific corruption issues around distributors. How will the Bribe Act be enforced in 2019 and how to handle an investigation in Russia? We conclude with some remarks about the NFL and its pathetic, inane non-response to the non-call in the Patriots-Rams NFC Championship. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and along with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors, we are here for episode 139 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending January 25, 2019, the worst officiating non-call ever edition. Jay, as we were treated to some horrid officiating, both the Patriots and Rams advanced to the Super Bowl. Uh, I have to ask you at some point, does the NFL even care about getting it right? But before we get to that uh, important topic, uh, there were some uh, really interesting FCPA compliance, ethics, and corruption stories this week. So uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you. And uh, my rhetorical question is, you're actually going to ask a Patriots fan what we think about Roger Goodell and the officiating in the NFL? Something like that. Well, you were not the beneficiary or the GOAT this time. So I figured with that... uh, distance, nuance, and subtlety, you would be able to give a, a fair assessment of uh, not not Raj the commish, but Raj the man. I don't think subtlety and Jay Rosen have ever gone together in a sentence, but let's uh, start off and talk about some GDPR woes on the other side of the pond. Right, so we had the uh, first GDPR uh, enforcement action involving a U.S. company this week, came down the French um, data protection regulatory regulator CNIL, CNIL, for those in the know, 
uh, assessed Google a $55 million fine for two, uh, two bases. One was a breach of transparency obligations under GDPR, and the second was a uh, failure for, uh, to establish a legitimate ground for handling the data. The uh, breach of transparency basically was that the uh, terms and conditions in Google are so opaque that uh, perhaps, but only just perhaps, could a legally trained professional read and understand them, but the rest of the world certainly can't. Uh, not that anyone in the U.S. would ever make uh, click-through terms and conditions difficult to read, but uh, the French regulator found that they had in this situation. Second, the data that um, was being collected, which uh, Google collects on a routine basis, was found to be not legitimate um, in uh, the EU's eyes or in CNIL's eyes. So uh, um, interesting shot across the bow. I was able to do a, kind of an emergency podcast with uh, Jonathan Armstrong and Andre Bywater from Cordery on this. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, Voss got a link to David Banks over at uh, the editor of uh, Navex's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. So, take a look at uh, all of these. Um, Jay, really, the significance is twofold one, maybe threefold one. The first case to the speed. Remember, GDPR went live May 25. So uh, not very long from initial uh, complaint made by Max Schrems, of all people, uh, to resolution. And then finally, uh, you know, this lack of transparency, that is, uh, you know, a byword of, of uh, U.S. Uh, data companies, whether that be Facebook, Google, or, or anybody else. So, so uh, you want to tell us about some good governance under German law? Sure. So uh, we're picking up something from the DNO Diary, which is published by Kevin Lacroix. And uh, apologies in advance about the names of our colleagues from Germany, but there's three attorneys from Mayor Brown's Frankfurt office that worked on putting this uh, client alert together. Ulrike Binder, uh, Jan Kravanger, and um, Burkhard Fassbach. So uh, one of the things they've taken a look at is – German corporate governance, and specifically the code, which presents essential regulations for management and supervision of German-listed companies. And they um, refer to a keynote speech at the German Institute for Compliance that was given in the summer of 2016 by Rolf Rom, presiding, presiding judge of the first criminal senate of the German Federal Supreme Court. Uh, he summarized the requirements for an adequate compliance management system, a CMS, and first pursuant to the principle of tone from the top. They went on to uh, enumerate some best practices that came from the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, and among those are leaders are expected to and incentivized to personally act with integrity, values and standards are clearly communicated, leaders create an environment where employers are empowered, discipline action is consistently taken against violators, and investigations are objective, consistent, and fair to all parties. Now, what they do is uh, further on, they're going to break this down into the differences between uh, executive liability, executive liability versus internal liability, full liability, and burden proof. And one of the uh, remarks that I thought was kind of interesting is when they first uh, start talking about executive liability, they say, in the area of management liability, Germany is one of the most litigious countries in the world behind the U.S. and Australia. 
Philadelphia, and in almost no other jurisdiction are the risks for managing directors higher. So in terms of if you're on a, a board and you're in uh, Germany, you really need to know about ethics and compliance, and then there's different degrees to which the company or the board may be responsible. So um, we link to this in the show notes, but it's a, it's a very well-researched article, and I think um, it will definitely uh, give some insight into what's happening in the German market, uh, and especially since uh, they are uh, bringing DPAs on in the short term. So uh, those are my takeaways. Anything uh, on your side, Tom? Uh, yeah, Jay, I thought it was an interesting read, and it's always good to understand what good corporate governance is uh, under any law. And it really helps, I think, the compliance practitioner be able to help educate his board or her board uh, on this issue, uh, particularly if they're doing business in uh, Germany. Jay, if I could use that to transition to another story uh, involving the German uh, bank, Deutsche Bank. Um, they are now under U.S. scrutiny for their role in the Danske Bank scandal. Um, Deutsche Bank, uh, we should parenthetically note, is uh, Donald Trump's bank, um, has been uh, continually under uh, U.S. scrutiny for their money anti-money anti laundering deficiencies, and this is just one more. Uh, Deutsche Bank has struggled with stress testing, which is uh, um, yet another uh, problem. And uh, frankly, Deutsche Bank doesn't need this, but uh, if they are going to fall under U.S. scrutiny, it's going to be interesting to see if Trump tries to intercede. On the other hand, maybe he figures they go under, he won't owe them any more money. So uh, interesting to see how uh, President Trump involves himself in the Deutsche Bank investigation. Uh, up next, we have an article from Dick Casson at the F FCPA blog, and uh, he's he's hit it out of the park again. He's had some real great insights in the first uh, month of 2019, and today he asked the question, should some parts of a compliance program be kept secret? And uh, you know, in, in the past, there's most companies take their code of conduct and policies and procedures and put them up on their investor relations page, and they make it very transparent so everyone can see what the expectations is. But one of the questions Dick asks is, from a corporate security perspective, the internal controls are there to stop people from stealing from the company or using assets to commit fraud. So internal controls then Something or something like the security system around a bank vault, and he's wondering if those things should actually be put out for people with nefarious intentions. Uh, last week, we spoke about him talking about um, combining AI with uh, compliance, and now he's wondering that uh, is it a good idea to reveal where all these new tool tools are embedded and how they'll work? So he thinks there should probably be a compromise that there is transparency, but if there are things that are integral to a company's uh, corporate security, maybe those are the things that should be kept behind the firewall. So um, let's go academic now, Jay. Okay. Uh, in, in all its glory, and I say that as the son of a professor or at least a former professor. There was a very interesting article posted in uh, New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog by Christos uh, MacDidris and some other name, which ends with Mr. Zhao. And it's entitled, Firm Reputation Following Accounting Frauds, Evidence from Employee Ratings. And although this is as 
about a dry uh, as language, academic language, as you can ask for, Jay. The result of this research by these two uh, individuals is that employees, how employees think about their company and how a gen, uh, the general public thinks about a company uh, influences the company's ability to retain and attract talented employees, which is an integral determinant of firm value. And when you have an accounting scandal, when you have an accounting fraud, this drives this down so that there is uh, a seen a decline in the perception uh, of the companies, which is seen driven down the overall ratings of a company, which further drive down the value of the company. It's a very long-winded way, and I must say I've summarized about 16 paragraphs in a few words, that um, – if you have an accounting fraud, if you have an accounting scandal, and I would say if you want to uh, expand it out to an FCPA scandal, uh, it's going to negatively impact both how employees see the company and how the public perceives the company. And that's going to lead to a decrease in the value of the company. Uh, I think you and I would both probably uh, uh, say this is intuitive, but here we have uh, academic uh, research verifying this. So one more data point of academic research that in the growing field of bribery and corruption and here accounting fraud and fraud, which demonstrates that uh, without a robust compliance program, without a robust anti-fraud program, without a robust anti-money laundering fraud uh, program, if you get in trouble and if there's a misstep, it's going to really hurt not only in the fine and penalty and investigative costs, but the longer term costs of uh, to your employees and to the public's perceptions of your company may be something that uh, is really hard to overcome going forward. Definitely agree with that, and um, it's in line with our expectations. Uh, next up, we have something that's coming to us from our uh, Everything Compliance colleague, Mike Volkov, and this comes from his uh, website, which is the uh, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance website. And the article is Merging Trade Compliance and Ethics and uh, Ethics and Compliance Silos. And um, the, one of the things that I like about when Mike does something is he really gets to the point and lays things out very easily for people to understand. And basically, he's looking at companies that have two siloed ethics and compliance system, and they might be involved with ITAR, or they might have trade compliance, and they might have things that are heavily regulated. But what's happened in these firms is that that information is siloed, and it's not part of their regular ethics and compliance Plan. And Mike makes a very uh, cohesive argument here that those silos should be broken down, and it's more effective if you take the elements of a trade compliance program, which are the same elements that are part of a regular anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, and other risk uh, preventive program, and you put them together under the same roof. So it uh, makes a lot of sense. I don't know how much that costs from a um, – from an accounting and from a, a technology and an IT perspective, but I would think in the long run, not only will you gain efficiencies, but you would probably save money as well. Tom, uh, next up, we've got something from Matt Kelly uh, that I believe it's a paper he did for uh, Navix, and it's talking about 
Distributors, FCPA, and Internal Controls, Lessons for Anti-Bribery and Corruption Programs. What's on Matt's mind? So um, we complete the trilogy, Jay, of our other uh, Everything Compliance colleagues. Uh, first had Jonathan Armstrong on Google, uh, Mike Volkoff, you just talked about, and now we have Matt Kelly. Matt writing in, uh, as you noted, Navex Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. And here uh, he talked about the uh, Polycom case, and he took a really deep dive into it. And I was so impressed by Max, Matt's blog, even though we had both blogged about this case and indeed done an entire podcast on it, um, uh, we, we did it again in the compliance into the weeds. And what Matt pointed out was the really the difference in the sales model of using a distributor from a commissioned sales agent or your own employees. It presents an entire different set of risks. It presents an entirely different set of potential pots of money that could be used or funded, rather, to pay a bribe. So uh, how much is your discount program for your distributors? Do you give your distributors uh, coupons? Do you provide them with rebates? Do you provide them with uh, sales devices which circulate uh, throughout your company, throughout the distributors and end-using customers? Uh, Any one of those could be converted to cash. Um, Typically with an agent, Jay, it's the commission, and that's it. Um, or they could be paid a straight straight hourly rate, uh, r- more rare, but still is done from time to time. So you know where the pot of cash is, and you can monitor it more closely. There are lots of different potential pots of cash uh, in the distributor. So we really use that as a starting point to try to explore what are the types of internal controls that you would need or could need to try and um, prevent or detect uh, primary corruption from the distributor model. It was really an interesting case. Uh, lots to look at. And the distributor model, we saw three cases in the fall of 2018, uh, FCPA enforcement actions. And, uh, you know, it could be they just happened to pop up at the same time, but it really gave me pause to, to really focus on the distributor model and the sales uh, side of things and how, how are you managing that and here, Matt really focused on the internal controls risk. So uh, take a look at Matt's article, listen to Compliance Into the Weeds, because we really took a deep dive into the weeds and geeked out totally. So uh, it was a lot of fun, and and I learned a lot out of it. Geeking out with the coolest guy in compliance, Tom it, Fox. It, well, and it doesn't get much Matt better. Than- so uh, next up, we have another um, piece from the FCPA blog. And this comes from a partner at Reynolds, Porter, and Chamberlain, LLP in London. Gentleman's name is Sam Tate, and he is the co-author of a leading UK anti-corruption compliance textbook, Bribery of Compliance Handbook. And um, as you know, since it's uh, a review article of 2008, he looks at the numbers for enforcement, um, whether it's from a corporate or individual perspective. And uh, what he's done that I think the part that we found the most interesting is that he made some uh, prognostications for 2019. And the first uh, basket he's looking at is surveillance. And he feels that the SFO has indicated that it intends to place a greater emphasis on obtaining its own cases 
rather than relying on referrals from the UK or US agencies. To that effect, the budget for the SFO has been increased from $44 million to $67.8 million. In terms of compliance, uh, new director Lisa Rozovsky, her recent background comes from a compliance consultancy she works at Exeger, and she's um, expected to result in greater compliance awareness in the SFL. In terms of Brexit, based on statements, uh, uh, positive interaction between the EU states, EU bodies, and the UK on anti-corruption is likely to continue post any form of Brexit. But if the UK leaves, uh, does Brexit in March of 2019, if they leave with no deal, the bigger anti-corruption-related impact of Brexit is expected that it could be taking up all the free time of the UK government. And finally, uh, as a consequence of that, although 2019 will see more calls to make it easier to prosecute large companies, um, Ministry of Ju- uh, in request for the Ministry of Justice to provide updated compliance guidance, there may not be time to make meaningful progress until the whole Brexit mess is sorted out. But it's a uh, it's a great article, and we uh, link to it in the show notes. Tom, uh, next up, why don't you tell us about how to handle an internal investigation in Russia? So this article also comes to us, Jay, from the FCPA blog. A gentleman named Haynes Lubitsch, uh, not Ernst Lubitsch, the famous director, but Haynes Lubitsch, unclear if there's any relation, uh, who is a partner in the Moscow office of Noor and uh, heads the Russian compliance and investigations practice, wrote a very, I think, interesting and useful article on corporate investigations in Russia and really detailed the differences uh, sort of between Russian law and Western law, or at least U.S. law. Um, I'm going to go through some of the highlights. Uh, Whistleblowers. Whistleblowers are not specially protected under uh, Russian law. Data transfer requirements. There's some pretty uh, severe, uh, robust Requirements around the transfer of personal data, which requires the consent of the employee and a data transfer agreement with the local company. Uh, Interviews with employees are constrained more than they are in the United States because employees are free to choose whether or not to participate in the interview. The attorney-client privilege is always problematic because there is no attorney-client privilege under Russian law. Uh, Cooperation with the authorities is uh, in parallel investigations is actually quite rare in Russia. So um, something very different than the United States. Disciplinary measures, uh, uh, as you might guess, from a former country where the workers own the methods and means of production, um, it's difficult to discipline someone in Russia uh, because there's a strict labor law, and you must uh, follow the requirements of that labor law. Once again, unlike at-will employees in the United States. And finally, self-reporting is is relatively not known or uh, unknown well in Russia. So uh, this can add to an uncertainties about what you need to do um, and usually only done in exceptional cases. It's a really interesting article and, and I think a useful article, even if you're not going to be involved presently or shortly in an investigation in Russia to understand the differences in uh, what you can and can't do. So uh, kudos to Mr. Lubitsch for uh, submitting this uh, for our consideration, Jay. So this week we had the first uh, affiliated monitor sponsored uh, week-long podcast. 
and you spoke to my colleagues, Vin Siani and Eric Feldman. Uh, what did you guys speak about, and uh, are there any takeaways you'd like to leave? So, Jay, uh, this week we uh, it was the first podcast series of 2019, not the first. But we did a series on the Binkowski memo, but really expanded it to DOJ guidance, starting with a new uh, corporate enforcement policy going forward. And it was literally a mini masterclass from Vin and Eric on what companies need to do to avoid a monitor if they find themselves in an investigation and really get them through an enforcement action. They took and sliced and diced the Binkowski memo not from the perspective of uh, what uh, the DOJ has to do to assign a monitor, but really what can a company do to avoid a monitor. Uh, And uh, that may seem uh, uh, counterintuitive to the mission of AMI. Nevertheless, it was an extremely useful series and extremely, I I thought, helpful for the compliance practitioner. Uh, The bottom line is, and it's the title of episode four, using the Benkowski memo as a a sword and a shield. You can use it to protect yourself as a company, but you you can also use it affirmatively and offensively uh, because of the language it details that the department has to go through, and it would show you how to avoid a monitor. So um, we've got uh, all five episodes up. You can listen to it on the FCPA compliance report. You can... uh, Download uh, all five episodes on iTunes and binge listen. Um, also on JD Supra, Panoply, and YouTube if you want to go over that route. It's a really fascinating series. I have to say I learned a lot. And uh, the whole roadmap idea from this uh, memo uh, I found really useful, Jay, and I think our listeners will as well. All right. So now we're down to the uh, topic that you previewed in the opening. What is arrogance and leadership the lads debate how the FNL, uh, the NFL can be so incompetent and seemingly not care one iota about it? Jay, we've just got a few minutes left, so I'll, I'll quickly say that in the Rams-Saints game with about two minutes to go, there was a clear pass interference when a defensive back ran about 20 yards and hit a defenseless receiver in the head, helmet to helmet, knock him out of bounds and interfering with his ability to catch the ball and also helmet to helmet to hit. Uh, There was one referee approximately seven yards away looking right at the play. There was another referee approximately 12 to 13 yards away looking right at the play. Seemingly neither saw it because neither threw a flag. Um, My wife, uh, as everyone knows, Mrs. Compliance Evangelist is English, and uh, she joined the 50 bars, 50 guys in a bar club. If you don't know what that is, if 50 guys in a bar say a plays a um, violation, it's a violation. Uh, and even she said, well, that's you can't do that. That's not fair. You can't hit him before the ball gets there, and you, you can't hit him in the head. So um, when Mrs. Compliance Evangelist uh, recognizes it's a clear penalty, it's a penalty. Uh, it costs New Orleans the game without a doubt. Uh, there's no recourse to New Orleans. Uh, but this this point or this section, Jay, is about leadership, and we've had a complete lack of leadership from Roger Goodell. He has not spoken publicly. He has not taken ownership of the blown call. He has not said that the NFL will rectify or remedy this. He has not said we will utilize all of our resources to get it right in the future. He has said absolutely nothing, and it's just pathetic. Um, and I don't even particularly like the Saints. 
and I care nothing about the Rams. So uh, it was just uh, uh, don't let me go any further. Okay. Well, I will say that you are preaching to the choir, but uh, some other time, maybe we do want to uh, take up on one of our forums whether or not uh, pass interference or similar types of penalties, offsides, whether or not that they can be um, officially challenged. So uh, I think that's at the crux of the matter, but I do agree with you that uh, the NFL's lack of ownership is appalling. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 139 for the week ending January 25th, the worst officiating non-call ever edition. Thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful weekend. Hello again, this is Tom Fox. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up next week's top compliance and ethics stories. And finally, I hope your team made it to the Super Bowl. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.